but I had no option. Well, Truman, your next you, question you had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada, and I am not going to ask Canadians to pay the price. You had an option, sir, to say no, and you chose to say yes I to the old attitudes and the old stories of the Liberal Party. That, sir, if I may say respectfully, that is not good enough for Canadians. I had no option. I was able that to is an avowal of failure. That is a confession I, of non-leadership. And this country needs leadership. You had an option, sir. Mr. You Turner. could have done better. We leave united, strong, headed towards victory, getting on with the job of presenting Canadians with a valid option to the present government, which has lost all credibility and trust in the Canadian people. That is our principal task. That is what we undertake now, together. Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So those were uh, some words from uh, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who uh, tragically passed away yesterday. He was Canada's 18th Prime Minister, steered the country through uh, incredible tumultuous times, uh, was a titan on the world stage in a way that I candidly don't think we have seen or will ever see uh, I hope we see it again in this country, but he was he was a remarkable, a remarkable, remarkable man. And he died, um, as many of you know, I've been hearing uh, over the last 24 hours or less uh, at age 84, surrounded by his family. Um, when I thought about talking about him today on the show, the word that came to mind to me repeatedly was statesman. Um, he stood up for Canada's values against communism, against authoritarianism. He helped end apartheid. Just in a way, it was a big thinker. He did big, huge things for this country. Uh, Canada was at the forefront of the liberation of Nelson Mandela and the destruction of apartheid. He helped end the Cold War. He he brought in free trade for this country, which economically still gives us amazing benefits. Uh, the GST controversial, but <laughs> so it just it goes on and on. He also and there were failures too, right? As as prime minister, two constitutional accords failed: Meech Lake and Charlottetown. Uh, also, the Acid Rain Treaty and the Montreal Protocol uh, he brought in, which helped heal a hole in the ozone layer. Uh, he was considered Canada's greenest prime minister and received awards to that end. Uh, he he was a he was a remarkable man, uh, and I got I was lucky enough to interact with him a few times. Um, one in 2008 when he was awarded the greenest prime minister award uh, for brokering that Acid Rain Treaty, and then again a little later um, when he. Uh, in 2018, when I actually helped his daughter, Caroline Mulroney, on her leadership campaign, I was the one kind of uh, coaching her through pre, pre-launch pre interviews, getting her ready to do that. And Prime Minister Mulroney at the time wanted to talk to me to get my measure and make sure I'll do right by his daughter. <laughs> so I remember uh, the phone was passed to me and it was him and it was his voice on the other line. And I candidly wanted to talk to me about the campaign and the, the, what we were doing and who I was. Uh, and... Uh, I was mesmerized by his voice. I was honored to speak with him, and I continue to believe he is—he was one of—he was my favorite prime minister, and I think the greatest PM uh, we've ever seen. Uh, so here uh, is another, just to give you a sense of his voice, because I think it's an important one. I spent a bunch of time this morning actually listening to some of his speeches, uh, including the one he gave uh, the eulogy for Queen Elizabeth II in Canada at our our ceremonies here. But here's here's a clip of Brian Mulroney speaking, just for all of you. At all times, my every effort was devoted to our common dream of a better and more united and more prosperous Canada for them, for us, and for our children. Obviously, I didn't always succeed, but I always tried to do what I thought would be right for Canada in the long term, not what could be politically popular in the short term. 
Prime Mulroney, the, the tributes to uh, Prime Minister Mulroney have been, of course, pouring in. Um, I want to play, can we play clip two? Actually, this is Pierre Polyev, because um, I do want to talk a bit about, we talked about him as a leader, but him as a as a person who loved his family and as someone who's interacted um, with some of the Mulroney family over the years. I can say that, that they were, a, a, they're a, they love each other. And he was certainly, yes, he was a statesman. But he was also a dad. Here's Pierre Polyev talking about the love Mulroney displayed for his wife, Mila. He was madly in love with his wife. Um, like, uh, you know, he, he was like a teenager around Mila. Um, and, um, I would ask him things like, you know, how do you get through all of the, the strain and stress of it all, all of the anticipatory anxiety that comes with not knowing what is going to happen next in this political jungle. And he said one word, Mila. Yeah. Um, I think that speaks to just the importance of it. So we are, of course, going to talk about this throughout the show today uh, at 1220. I'm going to be speaking with former uh, PC leader and former uh, conservative strategist, as well as former mayor of Toronto, John Tory, uh, a man who I was uh, lucky enough to work with, but also work quite closely with Brian Mulroney in his early days on Parliament Hill. So we'll speak to him about his experience. And also, of course, after one o'clock, we're going to talk about the panel, what this means for the country, Brian Mulroney's contribution. Uh, and before I go, I just do want to say my thoughts are continuing with um, his family, his kids, Caroline, Ben, Mark, and Nick, um, who, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they've lost their dad. We've lost a great statesman. They've lost their father. So we're all, of course, thinking of them. Uh, other things we're going to tackle on the show today. This story it's a bit like it's almost James Bondy in the way that uh, it's come together. And of course, we're going to have Marika Walsh on it at 12:35. And I urge you to stay come for that because this story is wild. So Canada has a high security infectious disease laboratory in Winnipeg. Um, it's equipped to deal with some of the most serious and deadly human diseases. And it's the only lab of its kind in the country, level four. So we're talking Ebola. We're talking, you know, we just came through a pandemic, which leveled our country and leveled our economics. Um, now, there's a new dump of documents that happened earlier this week, including an intelligence assessment that released late Wednesday that basically said a couple who basically were spies for China had been shipping materials to China, had been, you know, had close clandestine relationships with them. Um, and the report called out the reckless judgment regarding decisions that could have impacted public safety and interest in Canada. So this story is crazy. And in fact, Mark Holland, the health minister, has was asked about it because, you know, Yes, the investigation happened in 2019 and 2020, uh, 2021. So surely we've stopped collaborating with with China because they basically use spies in our highest, most top security lab. Uh, maybe not. So Health Minister Mark Holland told reporters on Ottawa Thursday that currently there's an ongoing process with the RCMP to determine what actions and misrepresentations the scientists at the lab displayed. This is what he said. Uh, and there is a process right now uh, with with uh, that's ongoing uh, to determine uh, by the RCMP and, and otherwise uh, what those actions, those misrepresentations meant in terms of what their intentions were with it. But it's deeply sad and disturbing uh, that uh, two eminent scientists who were Canadian citizens would do such a thing. So the two scientists were accused of violating safety and security policies. They invited restricted visitors into the lab. So allegedly agents of the People's Republic of China were let into our top secret laboratory. They also removed materials from the lab. Uh, investigators also found that one of the scientists received packages of biological samples from China that were mislabeled as kitchen utensils. And one scientist apparently has filed patents in China with material they obtained from the Winnipeg lab that they were not approved of. Now, the government inexplicably continues to collaborate with, well, we're stop sharing, quote, dangerous pathogens. We're still collaborating 
between the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg and China. So we're going to talk to Marika about Walsh from the Globe and Mail about this story, uh, about what this means for the country and why we continue to collaborate with China when we know they basically infiltrated our lab and have been using our science. So I think this story is wild. We're going to unpack that at 1235. So I, of course, urge you to stick along for that. Um, and then we're going to have the last topic of the day. We're going to have a little bit of fun at 1250. We're going to bring our friend Carmi Levy to tee up our Tech Friday. So uh, Tech Carmi is going to talk to us about some of the biggest tech stories, including a watch that is a smartphone that basically folds over your arm and is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. And I hope no one ever uses it. But apparently this is a new big thing that's going to be looking this country. We're also going to talk to a story about uh, vending machines. Uh, University of Waterloo um, students discovered that vending machines that were all over their campus were actually using facial recognition software to track them. And the reason they found this out, was it disclosed? Was it told to them? No, no, it wasn't. Someone saw an error message on it about it, on, on one of the machines about it. So but you're, you're, you're a student, you're tired, you're going to get a snack. All of a sudden, you see an error message that they can't analyze your face and track you throughout the campus. Those are, of course, removed. But I want to talk to Carmi about using facial recognition, what that means. Is that all over the place or is this a rare occurrence? Um, so, you know, come interesting tech stories, some wild stories out of the Globe and Mail today about uh, espionage in Winnipeg and our top lab. And of course, we'll continue to talk about former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, uh, his passing and what that means for the country. So join me after the break where I will be speaking with John Tory about his legacy uh, for the country. I'm Mandy Galbraith on the iHeart Radio. We'll talk to you next. Back to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. This is Free For All Friday, where, of course, we talk about some of the biggest stories of the week. And the biggest story, I think, in the country right now is, of course, news of Brian Mulroney, former, who was Canada's 18th Prime Minister, uh, passing yesterday at the age of 84. Uh, we are going to speak to uh, a, a prominent Canadian, but also... Funny enough, he could describe himself as one of Mr. Mulroney's former staffers shortly. Uh, but before we do that, I do want to just uh, play you this brief clip of Prime Minister Mulroney uh, speaking about uh, what inspired him for, to do At that. all times, my every effort was devoted to our common dream of a better and more united and more prosperous Canada for them, for us, and for our children. Obviously, I didn't always succeed. But I always tried to do what I thought would be right for Canada in the long term, not what could be politically popular in the short term. Uh, tributes have come in from around the world, uh, including former U.S. presidents. Uh, but also here's what our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, had to say about Brian Mulroney. And then he leaned in and helped me and helped this country in the very precarious moments of renegotiating NAFTA uh, with the Trump White House. Um, demonstrated a deep commitment to this country that I think is the very best of Canadians and the very best of politics. Joining me now to talk about his experience with Brian Mulroney and the legacy of Mr. Mulroney is uh, John Tory, former mayor of Toronto, leader of the Conservative Party of Ontario from 2004 to 2009. Um, mayor Tory, Mr. Tory, thank you for coming on the show with me today. My pleasure, Amanda. 
Um, so I guess, you know, open you, you, can you tell us a little bit about, you worked with, um, Brian Mulroney as when he was prime minister. So you can tell us a bit about your experience with him. Well, we had a very long standing relationship that went back to when I supported him when he ran for leader the first time and lost. And he was a relative unknown. And I, you know, you stay in touch with these people. And then he, of course, he ran a second time and became prime minister. And I got very involved in the mid eighties with him as a volunteer advisor. I never worked for him. Uh, but I was somebody who talked to him several times every week and, you know, got, was very much involved in the run-up to the free trade election and, and actually traveled with them during the free trade election for 60 days. And, you know, you really get to know somebody when you travel with them, no matter who it is, for uh, 60 days. So, but, you know, what's true about him, Amanda, is exactly what he said in his own words, because I'll tell you a story that illustrates this. He went into the caucus, and I went many times into the caucus with him. That's the relationship I had with him. He took me in there, and he said to them, I am telling you now, when we do the GST, which is necessary to right the country's finances and, 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 and boost the economy, it is going to drive us down in the polls. And he said, I wouldn't be surprised if we got down to single digits. And this is unheard of, being at single digits, and that you'd actually go in and predict that. And he stayed the course and put the GST in. And a lot of people still hate it, but the country, its finances would be in a complete wreck you know, way worse than anything we've ever thought of before if we hadn't done the GST. And I remember going into caucus in the future, of, you know, five years later or three years later and reporting that we had indeed arrived at single digits, 9% in the poll. <laughs> but that's how determined he was, you know, to do the right thing. He really did. I mean, people think that stuff sounds like bromides when they hear him saying it, but he really did think that way. You know, you, you can you, you need to do the right thing, and then hopefully you can sort of tough it out and convince people you did the right thing, and therefore they should still support you even if they're not happy with it. And what was it about him that enabled him to, because we've had, we've had, there's different types of political leaders. You've worked with them. I've worked with them. There are some who are incrementalists who make slow changes, whereas Mulroney did big things, you know, whether it was destruction of apartheid, helping end the cold war, free trade, GST, you know, two failed constitutional courts. You figure if you do it once and it didn't work, you'd stop, but he never did. Acid rain treaty. Like what made him the kind of leader that wanted to do big things? I think he, was the person, first of all, who was very determined. And I think you need that kind of determination. I think, secondly, he had a vast network of relationships and he could count on people standing in with him as things became unpopular. Like, he, he really, it sort of bothered him, but it didn't bother him to the point where he backed away or where he decided not to do something bold. And then I think the third thing was uh, relationships he had. He, he, he used those and he led in the most positive way. I mean, he, he nurtured relationships because he was so charming and intelligent and fun to be with and a great leader. And he used those relationships then to get things done. And, and he figured, well, if you're going to use those relationships to get something done, it might as well be something pretty big. So when he convinced Ronald Reagan to even talk about acid rain, this is a huge thing. I mean, Ronald Reagan, you know, thought acid rain was caused by trees. I mean, he told Mr. Mulroney that. Uh, you know, same with free trade. I mean, this was something that was seen as a heresy. Uh, you know, and you go down the list. I mean, the GST I talked about already, and he knew it was going to drive the Progressive Conservative Party into unpopularity. But he just was determined to get these things done because they had to get done. And he had these big majorities, and he was one of those people that understood when you have a big majority, that's the time when you should, you know, use it, use the credit in the bank uh, to, uh, you know, to get something done with it. Uh, if you're just joining me now, I'm speaking with John Tor. He's the former mayor of Toronto, leader of the Press Conservative Party of Ontario from 2004 to 2009, and of course worked closely with former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney over the decades. Um, one thing that, uh, you know, we talk about Canada's place in the world, and we're obsessed with it now, and are we are we irrelevant, are we not? But Brian Mulroney, during his time as Prime Minister, Canada had a, a prominent place in the world. I mean, he gave the eulogies for both President Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Exactly. Bush. To, Unheard of. Um, he... 
Yeah, which is it's like actually insane. I knew he gave one of them, but I didn't I didn't realize he did yeah. both until I was doing this research. Um, you know, famous videos of him singing with with um Reagan, Irish Eyes are smiling. What was Canada's you know, you were there as a young man watching this happen. What was Canada's place in the world like? Like how where were we? How come we were so big and influential? Is that because of well, him I mean, or I, I, his choices? I, I hate to say it as if, you know, as if it's all about him, but it was because of him, because he nurtured those relationships. Mrs. Thatcher who profoundly disagreed with him going in on apartheid, nonetheless would listen to him enough that he eventually convinced her to change her mind. Mr. Reagan, uh, you know, started off thinking acid rain was caused by trees and, and later, under Brian Romerney's persuasion, uh, changed her, his mind. And he used those relationships. When I say used, I don't mean it in a manipulative way to uh, say, look, these are the things we simply have to get done here. And so I think that, that, that so his stature was high. And because he was the Prime Minister of Canada, therefore Canada's stature was high. But you heard him describe it in some of the clips this morning. You know, we're a middle power, can't to expect too much from us, et cetera. He knew that, that we weren't about to be a, a superpower like the U.S. or, or even, um, you know, the U.K., but that we were a middle power with a very influential leader. And I think at the end, that's what raised our stature during that period of time. And that's not putting anybody else down. It's just saying he knew how to work those relationships uh, such that uh, he achieved more than Canada might normally be expected to achieve in terms of influence. Um, I've just got a couple minutes left, um, yep. Mr. Tory. Uh, I do want to ask a little bit about him as a person. So now we talk about him as a leader. He was also a family man through and through. He has his four kids, Ben, Caroline, Mark, and Nick, and of course his wife, Mila, who he loved. How did he manage to be this big person on the international stage, do big things, and yet he still prized focus on his family. Like, what? how did he manage to balance those things? He just never forgot where he came from. I mean, and I extend that to Bay Como. I had the chance to go to Bay Como, his hometown. He was born in a small little town in the far east of Quebec. And he never forgot that's where, where his roots were. His father was an electrician, and he never forgot. He, he himself would sort of, you know, pinch himself and say, I can't believe her. I am this boy that came from Bay Como, and I'm Prime Minister of Canada. But he never forgot either about his family, and his kids were really important to him. I said many times when he was under attack, you know, because I was one of the ones sent out to defend him in those days when he was prime minister, uh, that, you know, anybody that has kids and they were nice when they were young kids, because I knew them when they were very young, uh, nice when they were young kids and they're nice today, anybody who raises uh, kids like that, and it was him and Mila together, and she was rock. I mean, she stood by him. She took an interest in what he was doing. She supported him. She showed up for him. Um, and I think the combination of all that made, you know, and he was very devoted to them, but it, it made him, it helped to make him the success he was, because he always had that to kind of fall back. When the worst of times were on, you know, and I remember we were like we were at nine percent in the polls, and everybody sort of seemed to dislike him. Um, he stood in there because I think he had that as his rock in the end, and he believed in what he was doing. But I mean, by the way, he he was the most charming, funny, and I wish people had seen that side of him, which I had the chance to do over and over again. He seemed a bit stiff when you saw him on TV, uh, and a bit too well dressed and this kind of stuff. And it's just one of those things you can't do anything about that. But he was a charming, funny you know, down to earth, you know, feet on the ground kind of guy. He was not pompous and people sometimes thought he was and he was not. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, John Tory, for joining us to talk about uh, the legacy of Brian Mulroney. Have thank you. Be missed. Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate it. That was former Mayor John, Toronto Mayor John Tory, uh, former advisor to Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, talking about his experience with um, Mr. Mulroney and the legacy that he left, uh, which continues to shape this country. Uh, after the break, we're going to talk about, we can talk to Mirka Walsh, senior political reporter with the Globe and Mail, about infiltration of our top virus lab in Canada and what the government is doing to make sure that doesn't happen again. Uh, that's next after the break on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
And now more of Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. And this is, of course, Free For All Friday, where we talk about some of the biggest stories of the week. And this is a big story that's been happening. It's been an ongoing story that uh, reporters at the Globe and Mail in particular, and joining us to talk about this momentarily is Michael Walsh, who's a senior political reporter with the Globe, um, has been picking at Um but there was a release of documents this week about it, which caused my eyebrows to go up, and I think certainly others in this country. Now, Canada has a high-security infectious disease lab in Winnipeg. It's equipped to deal with some of the most serious and deadly human and animal diseases. It's the only lab of its kind we have in the country called Level 4. So it's it's a big deal, and we've all been through covid so I don't need to explain to you why when viruses get out or they're not or get around that they're not managed properly, it is it is a challenge, which is why this document has caused concern. So a couple years ago, several years ago, I guess, a couple of scientists, a couple, they were married, have been working at the facility, um, were walked out and subsequently fired for sharing information with China. In effect, espionage. They were spies. According to CSIS, who did an analysis of this, um, they could have put people's health in jeopardy by doing things like apparently allowing um, representatives from the People's Republic of China, like unsanctioned visitors, into the lab unaccompanied. They also received packages of biological samples from China that were mislabeled as kitchen utensils. Uh, There's a lot of really fishy stuff happening here. So you would think, okay, so we've stopped all collaboration with China in this lab, right? Well, apparently not. Here's Health Minister Mark Holland talking to reporters on Thursday that currently there's an ongoing process with the RCMP to determine the actions of the scientists and what needs to be done. Uh, and there is a process right now uh, with with uh, that's ongoing uh, to determine uh, by the RCMP and, and otherwise uh, what those actions, those misrepresentations meant in terms of what their intentions were with it. But it's deeply sad and disturbing uh, that uh, two eminent scientists who were Canadian citizens would do such a thing. So I don't really understand a lot of what he said there, I'll be honest. There's a lot of word salad for me. So joining me to explain that is Marika Walsh, as I mentioned, senior political reporter with The Globe and Mail. Marika, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Amanda. I'm hailing from the word salad capital of Canada. (laughs) Um, Okay. So can you tell us, I mean, this story is very, very complicated, Um, but Mm -hmm. can you just explain to us, you know, what this couple, this, those, these they're Canadian scientists accused of Chinese or espionage on behalf of China. Um, what they were sharing and and how this was a national security failure. Yeah, so it's complicated and it's not, and it depends on on you know the point is there's so many different layers of this that it can get complicated. But at the nut of it, in what you explained in your introduction, is what's important is that documents that the government finally released this this week after years of refusing to do so show that the public health agency failed to follow its own security protocols and rules to ensure things like this don't happen. And that as part of that, these two scientists shared information with China, had clandestine meetings with Chinese entities and people connected to the People's Republic of China, worked in sort of research publications with people connected to the Chinese military. And these are all sort of things that CSIS says is a deep concern because China is a threat, is a known security threat to Canada. And the CSIS document said that these scientists did say, did share, excuse me, sensitive information with China. And the point here is that researchers in Canada might do public health research simply for public health. 
But what experts say about China is that China uses what seems to be innocuous research or research that is used for positive things like figuring out how to cure viruses and instead uses that information to weaponize those same things against other entities, against other countries. And so that's why this is so significant. And that's why this is so important. And I think the fact that this all was happening in, you know, as recently as 2019, when the two Michaels were already imprisoned by China, shows why the government tried to keep this out of the public spotlight. Yeah, and it's, I mean, there's a whole, we could do a whole segment on just the process of getting the documents out and how, you know, <laughs> the, the parliament, yes. parliamentarians called the head of the public health Agency of Canada to Parliament to reprimand him for not releasing the documents. Mm-hmm. First time this has happened in like 110 years. There was mm-hmm. a parliamentary committee. Finally, all this stuff came out. Um, yeah. But I, I do want to, which is like, that's a whole other crazy, wild thing. So, but are we, but just on the basis of the CSIS has done multiple like reports and analysis saying, you know, this couple, this was dangerous to Canada, it could have endangered our public health. Surely, mm-hmm. given our that, economic security as well. Yeah, surely given that we've stopped working with, collaborating with China with this lab, right? Like that's happened? Well, that's what's confusing. So that was the follow-up story that I worked on yesterday with my colleagues Steve Chase and Robert Fife, who have really broken the news on these this issue multiple times, brought this to the public's attention for the first time several years ago, and has been uncovering just a countless ream of developments since then. So really credit to them on this. And the follow-up I worked with them on is is what is actually happening now. So the minister had said on Wednesday when the documents were released that yes, there was lax adherence to security measures, but that was all fixed. But then when I went back to him in a follow-up press conference on Thursday, he would not say very clearly what was and was not happening anymore in terms of collaborations with China. So first he said, There were no more collaborations between infectious disease researchers at this lab and China, but then he walked it back in the same answer to say he couldn't say categorically there was none. The only sort of clear thing he would say was that there's no more sharing of deadly pathogens with China. So one of the things that happened that my colleagues revealed is that there was the sharing of deadly viruses like Ebola that didn't follow the proper um, sort of processes for sharing and releasing that kind of virus. That was initially what the government sort of sloughed this off of or shrugged this off of many years ago. It was sort of like they didn't follow the right paperwork. That was the issue here. Now we know it was much more than just a paperwork issue. But the government is saying that those kind of exchanges of deadly viruses is not happening anymore with this lab and Chinese institutions. But it won't really say what is still happening. In fact, it won't clarify at all what is still happening. We just know from the minister's comments yesterday that something, what he calls lower level interactions, are still happening. It's hard to understand what a lower level interaction is at Canada's top security lab. All right. And if you're just joining me, I'm uh, speaking with Marika Wall. She's a senior political reporter with The Globe and Mail, uh, talking to me about a story that uh, she uh, broke yesterday around Canada continuing to work with uh, Chinese officials at our top uh, security lab in Winnipeg after, um, you know, a reef of documents were released saying basically that there has been Chinese espionage at that same lab. Um, so, Marika, what, out of curiosity, these two scientists who are Canadians, they're not they're not 
Chinese nationals, but they were collaborating with China and have been noted, as you said, by CSIS to be threats, potential threats to Canadian economic uh, and health security. What happened to them? Their whereabouts aren't known, and this is something that my colleagues um, Bob Fife and Steve Chase have been looking looking into. Our latest reporting is that their whereabouts aren't known. I my understanding is that they might be dual nationals with China, but that is um, I can't say that with clarity. But certain certainly they had a lot of access and a lot of interactions with People's Republic of China entities, and in that word salad comment from the minister, as you described it. The, what he was actually trying to say or trying to avoid saying is that the the RCMP are investigating this to see, so there might still be next steps, but there is some sort of probe or analysis happening by the RCMP. Okay, and I have about 30 seconds left, um, which is why this is going to be a really easy answer for you. How do we know this isn't going to happen again? Depends who you ask. The minister says everything is now done and, and the same thing can't happen again. He said, he told Vashti Capellas on CTV, it would be 100% impossible, but the Prime Minister said they're still looking at more more things to do. All right. Uh, that is Marika Walsh, uh, Senior Political Reporter for The Globe and Mail. Marika, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Amanda. So that is a wild story. I would encourage you, it's complicated, but I would encourage you to pay attention to it because it, it is about our national security. Uh, this is our most secure, like high-ranking lab in the country that was infiltrated by alleged spies and our government has been withholding information on it so i think we need to continue to follow this we'll of course keep an eye um after the break i'm going to be joined by our tech expert carmy levy to talk about the biggest headlines of the day including an ai uh tool it's too woke that's next Free for All Fridays continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, and this is Free for All Friday, where we dig into the biggest stories of the week. And we are lucky enough to have one of my favorite uh, guests on the show, Carmi Levy, CTV tech expert, to get into all the big technology news of the week. Carmi, welcome to the show. Oh, that is the best welcome I've had all week. Thanks so much, Amanda. <laughs> it is great to be here with you. Um, so I basically what I've started doing, by the way, now is I just troll different tech stories through the week and then I send them in a blast to my prisoner. And I'm like, we can have Carmi on to talk about these. <laughs> so these are the things that sort of popped in my mind this week that I found were kind of wild. And this first one is uh, real fascinating. We talk a lot about AI and obviously, you know, many companies are, are kind of launching different tools, ChatGPT being the one we're most common. But Google launched uh, Gemini AI, kind of an imaging tool, and it sort of backfired a little bit. What happened with that? Yeah, they uh, so Gemini, as you said, it is kind of like Google's counterpart to ChatGPT. And so you use it in much the same way, but it includes an image generator. And when it was asked to generate images of uh, the founding fathers of the U.S., it included women in it, which, of course, they were not elected till decades later. Uh, then it was asked to illustrate uh, uh, images from 1930s Nazi Germany. 
company, uh, and it included people of color and uh, other diverse backgrounds, which clearly, you know, based on their pursuit of an Aryan nation, I'm pretty sure diversity wasn't part of the menu back then. <laughs> so obviously, Gemini you know, doesn't get everything right. And we've seen that before. We've used ChatGPT for a while. We know that sometimes it kind of goes rogue, it lies, it, it hallucinates a little bit. The longer that we talk to it, the more likely it is to go off the rails. Had a bit of an episode last month where it just started spouting gibberish. And so this is a known issue with artificial intelligence powered chatbots that uh, every once in a while they're going to do some really weird things because their architecture is still being figured out. There are a lot of black boxes in there. And even the companies that make them have admitted they don't really know what's going on inside them when things do go uh, a little wonky. So it went wonky. And and what seems to, there's this, sort of this new thing. You will have people who will go online and try to use different kinds of prompts, different kinds of inputs to get the chatbots to trip up. Then they'll screen grab them, they'll share them, and they want to go viral. So that's kind of what's happening here is that everyone is essentially saying they're blaming Google for building Gemini AI as a woke tool. Uh, because it includes these, it makes these mistakes. But the reality is, it isn't perfect regardless. And if I wanted to maybe force a, a mistake on the other side of the political spectrum, I could very easily do that as well. It has nothing to do with wokeism. It has everything to do with the architecture of AI that is very much imperfect at this point in time. And it's pretty easy to coax it off the top of the mountain. Uh, that is it, that's fascinating to me. So, and it's obvious it's Google's producing this, right? Which is you know the biggest one of the yeah. biggest companies in in the world. So you'd figure they'd have it narrowed down, but they've actually and they've <laughs> taken the tool offline, right? I mean, there's one. You talk about people trying to go viral. There was one interaction that caught my eye, which um, where Gemini, the AI tool, was asked whether Elon Musk tweeting memes or Adolf Hitler ordering the death of millions of people was worse and it refused to say. So they're taking it offline and what happens next? They'll retool it and relaunch it? Yeah, they're going to look into sort of the way the tool is built and they're going to try to introduce more guardrails to uh, ensure that these kinds of rogue responses don't come, you know, don't get shared. I think though, uh, you know, it's what is missing from these exchanges like i saw the the elon musk uh and hitler one as well we saw the 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 last prompt as well as the response what we didn't see were all the questions and answers and sort of parts of the exchange that happened before then and so the way these chatbots work is if i want to get a chatbot to swear at me i can kind of push it in that direction i can goad it i can coax it till eventually it finally does that if i want to get it to admit to me that nuclear apocalypse is a good thing i can push it in that direction just by the the tone of my prompts, the tone of my exchange with it. Um, so you can push these things in any given direction. We're not seeing that here. And so what Google's job now is to look at the at the sort of how the generator works underneath and identify where are those weak points? How can it be abused? How can it be pushed over a moral or ethical or legal line? And how do we build protections against that? But you can imagine it's like policing the ocean right how many variables are there there are billions of people out there and i'm sure there are a lot of them who would love to trip gemini ai up there are only so many engineers in the world who can figure out how to protect against that so it's a bit of a cat and mouse game and we're still going to be seeing these for a while it's just the way this technology is built and quite frankly it's the it's the way the humans like to act they like to get a lot of attention this is how they get attention in the age of ai Speaking of getting attention, uh, one Ontario university is pulling dozens of vending machines that were apparently tracking the age and gender of customers using uh, facial recognition software. So the University of Waterloo students became aware of this 
after one student spotted an on-screen error message at the vending machine saying it was problems with the facial recognition. So I guess I have all the questions about this one, but one, is this like a widespread thing? If I'm going to get candy from, I don't do it very often, I'll be totally honest because I'm over 40, but uh, if I'm getting something from a vending machine, is there facial recognition software tracking what I'm doing now, Carmi? Potentially. And just, I mean, for the record, Amanda, no matter how old we are, we all deserve sweets. So don't, don't <laughs> deny yourself. But um, there, but if you look at the vending machines that dispense these sweets, they are getting, and all vending machines are becoming a lot more sophisticated. They've got screens on them. They're interactive. They run software. They have promotions on them. And so what, what this was all about was uh, it wasn't discovered. There were no signs that said, hey, this thing has facial recognition built into it. Smile for the camera. There was none of that. It was only discovered when it tripped off an error message that actually showed the, the name of a file that had facial facial recognition in it. So, um, you know, they got caught with their hands in the cookie jar. And I think we have to expect that when we are out and about, more and more of these devices will have cameras in them and they should be labeled in the ideal world whoever is rolling these things out would be upfront about it. They weren't here and they got caught. Uh, yeah, see, um, uh, Cadillac Fairview got caught a couple of years ago in their shopping centers across the country. Uh, Rideau Center in Ottawa, um, um, Yorkdale in Toronto, you know, near me in London, um, you know, where uh, the, the kiosk that used to find your way around the map had a camera in it. And it was also discovered after the fact. And then they had to kind of backtrack on it. Canadian Tire was doing the same thing in their stores and they got caught. So the lesson here is if you're going to roll out facial recognition because you want to customize the experience, you want to be able to sell more, you want to be able to have a better sense of who's shopping here, who wants to buy a chocolate bar, who wants to you know shop at this shopping mall, then put a sign up. Say, this has facial recognition. This is what we're going to do with the data. We're not going to identify you. We're going to anonymize it. Whatever it is, be upfront. And I think most people would accept that, that it's a reasonable trade-off. It's when you try to hide it, like they did here, that's when I think we get into some pretty iffy territory. And that's where I think it's right for us to criticize them. All right. I got about 40 seconds left, and I want us to get to this one. Uh, so at the Mobile World Congress, Motorola has launched a new concept phone that wraps around your wrist. So it's a cell phone that doubles as a smartwatch that wraps around. It is possibly the ugliest thing I have ever seen Carmi. Are we going to see this on store shelves? No, we aren't. It's only a concept phone. It's called the Motorola Adaptive Display Concept. But here's the thing. Everyone who wants a smartphone has already bought one. So that market is kind of mature. And so now they're thinking about what's the world going to look like after smartphones are a thing. And they're trying all sorts of different kinds of devices and designs using rollable screens, soft screens, foldable screens, and they're seeing what sticks and they're monitoring how people talk about it after the fact. So that's really what they're doing. They're trying to train us for what comes after that smartphone, because let's face it, uh, at some point, it's going to seem really weird to walk around with a rigid piece of rectangular glass in our pocket. I think the industry can do better. And this is the first example of what they're trying to replace that trusty old smartphone that we've been using for 15 years. All right, Carmi, we're out of racetrack. Thanks for coming on the show as always. Up next, we have the panel. We're going to dig into everything from espionage to Brian Mulroney's legacy. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. But I had no option. Well, Truman, your next you, question. You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. And I am not going to ask Canadians to pay the price. You had an option, sir, to say no. And you chose to say yes I... to the old attitudes and the old stories of the Liberal Party. That, sir, if I may say respectfully, that is not good enough for Canadians. I had no option. I was able that to is an avowal of failure. That is a confession I, of non-leadership. And this country needs leadership. You had an option, sir. Mr. You Turner. could have done better. We leave united, strong, headed towards victory, getting on with the job of presenting Canadians with a valid, 
option to the present government, which has lost all credibility and trust of the Canadian people. That is our principal task. That is what we undertake now together. Back to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. That, of course, was the voice of former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. He was the leader of the Progressive Conservatives from 1984 to 1993 and passed away yesterday at the age of 84. He was Canada's 18th Prime Minister. I am, of course, Mandy Galbraith. Uh, in the saddle today, this is Free For All Friday, where we unpack some of the biggest stories of the week. Uh, and this, of course, is the biggest story of the week. I think it's the biggest story that we'll see in a while and a sort of an important thing to debate, which we'll be doing with our panel who joins me today. Chris Day, president of Winston Wilmot and Allison Fair, Blue Sky Strategy Group, communications and media consultant. Uh, Allison and Chris, thank you for joining the show. Thank Great you. Enough. Now, you know, we, we've we talked about um, former Prime Minister Mulroney in a, a bunch of different ways in the show. I had uh, John Tory on earlier, who uh, is my former boss, and I have, a, you know, I, I have, anyway, I think the world of him, and he talked about just his relationship with Prime Minister Mulroney, how he saw him work. Uh, he, I, I don't even know how to kind of encapsulate it, other than to say yeah. the word statesman, I think, comes to mind. I said earlier, he stood for Canada's values against communism, authoritarianism, he gave the eulogies at both Prime Minister President Ronald Reagan and George H. W. Bush's funerals. He was mm-hmm. a, a titan that did big things for this country. Uh, you know, acid rain treaty, free trade, helped end the Cold War, helped uh, destroy, destroy apartheid and free Nelson Mandela. Like, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. Uh, I want the panel to dig into what they think of his legacy. But first, let's hear from former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien on Brian Mulroney. We would tease each other. You will poke fun at me, I will poke fun at him. And, uh, you know, we will, uh, you know, as I say, it is, we have to take, not to take ourselves too seriously. We have to take the job very seriously. But life is life and we all do our best. Uh, That was, of course, Premier Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Uh, Chris, to you first. You know, I'll let you take this any way you want, just because he was such a, a huge figure in this country. But what's your take on on the passing of, of Brian Mulroney and his legacy? Well, he was such a huge figure, and I have to admit, I've become kind of emotional a couple of times over the last, mm-hmm. you know, twelve hours or you know, fifteen hours since this news came out, because, you know, the tributes have been so beautiful and glowing. Um, I had a I had the good fortune of having a, had a couple of personal interactions um, with the former prime minister when he was Mr. Mulroney, and I got to work with him most recently on a on a very cool project just a couple of years ago. And you know what what really struck me was his wisdom, right? And it's the wisdom of of a lived experience that is you know really unparalleled. Um, I think in in modern Canadian political. Uh, discourse certainly but you know perhaps even bigger than that you know he he was you you hit it on the head about it like he was bold and transformational he was a statesman but he was also a striver both personally for his party and for the country and you know what some of the things that have really struck me in the last few hours that i've i've been reading and, and seeing and hearing you know, not only are, are people grieving the man, but I think they're grieving what appears to be a bygone era of politics where mm-hmm. disagreement doesn't necessarily need to be dis disagreeability, dislikability. Um, and it's also grieving for a time when Canada truly punched above its weight 
on the world stage and here at home. Um, you know, I, I think his biggest contribution is the fight against apartheid. Um, personally, I, I think his biggest domestic contribution is, is the, the free trade agreement, which is essentially, you know, the same one that he, he managed to shepherd through and, and, and bring in all those years ago. And, you know, if you think about the contributions on the world stage and the fight against the, you know, communism and the Cold War, uh, you know the fight for human rights and, and and equality around the world, and a really stronger, better, uh, better equipped Canada here at home. What a legacy! Yeah, I, and I, Chris, I think you. I also have, by the way, gotten emotional. And we were uh, the the montage off the top. Like it made me. Mm. It did. I got and, and and part of it too is like I know um, his family or himself has touched many people in kind of the political world and. Um, you know, myself included. So I, I can't help but think about them as well. But Allison, you know, mm-hmm. what's your take on on all of this and the legacy of of, of Prime Minister Brian Mulroney? Well, well, I join you too on that emotion. Um, it has been a the last twelve hours or so have been a walk down memory lane. Um, he actually was the one who got me interested in politics. I was at that age where I, you know, I was listening to my, my family, uh, my mom in particular, who was just talking all about this man who was going to lead this country. And uh, I got interested and it took me, you know, my career uh, of being involved in politics. And, uh, and then uh, again, like Chris and yourself, um, my career, I had the fortunate uh, opportunities of meeting the man and just being awestruck uh, with who he was and the first meeting and then the subsequent meetings of, of him knowing still who I was. I think that's the wonderful thing you're looking at um, of the people remembering going, he was such a humble, uh, down-to-earth man, even though he was this strong politician. Um, he got to know you. And if you met him, he would remember you. He would, he would, like, I would call him and, 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 and deal with him. And he was like, oh, how's your daughters? How's this? And it was just unbelievable. Like, you think about how many people he has met and who he had met over his lifetime. And to think that he remembered I had two daughters, you know, that it, it says a lot about who he was, uh, who he, and, and just what he meant to this country. I think this uh, Canada is a better off because of him. Um, and I think it's striking, striking all of us in a way because um, I didn't really know the prime ministers before him. I know them now, like after him, but this is a prime minister that has touched us all. And um, I remember, I remember when uh, uh, Pierre Trudeau passed away and, and watching his uh, state funeral, but it didn't really touch me because I really didn't know him. We all, I think all three of us and, and your listeners, we know uh, the former prime minister. Um, and, you know, we've seen him uh, help out in so many ways. And not only as a politician, but as a friend to, you know, the United States, um, as a family man to his, you know, his daughter, the, the minister in the Ontario government, uh, his son who, uh, you know, was a very public figure. And um, yeah, it, it, it's a, it is a sad day, and it'll be interesting to see how this uh, plays out. You know, with the state funeral, um, 
and we hear the details, but a really sad day for this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, one thing I do want to swing back to a bit, Chris, because I I feel like I could do, well, we could do a whole show. We could do a day on just his accomplishments. But the the thing that you talked about and touched on is the morning of a bygone era in Canadian Mm -hmm. politics. And I, I truly do think he he was the last of that to my mind in this country. And I say this having worked with like politicians on all sides of the aisle, like in like in all like most of them elected now, is that there just doesn't seem to be I don't know the space, the room, the appetite to be the kind of statesman, the kind of you know reach across the aisle sort of person in public life, which he did while he was in public life. Uh, nowadays there doesn't seem no nobody no one wants to tackle not one but two constitutional courts like can you imagine like I just the mm-hmm. just the it's it just remarkable so I do think as a country and maybe as just maybe just political watchers more closely but we are mourning that in our what I think is a place on the stage that largely happened because the world stage because of the relevance of of Brian Mulroney I don't think that was because Ken was a middle power and he managed to make it much bigger than that so of course uh, our thoughts go to the Mulroney family including um, his wife Mila their kids Caroline Ben Mark and Nick uh, we are going to continue to debate uh, issues on the show including arrive can what's new you won't believe it that's next after the break Now more of Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show, my friends. Amanda Galbraith here in the saddle with you this Friday. Uh, This is Free For All Friday where we unpack some of the biggest stories of the week. And man, this story, it will not end. It will not end. And I guarantee you the government wishes it would end. I can't even fathom how this has evolved. Uh, So Arrive can't. Right. Arrive scam, as some people are calling it. I'm not going to do that, but I will just say mm-hmm. it's, it's certainly a moniker that is more increasingly uh, maybe somewhat warranted. But we, we shall see, um, you know, earlier this week. Uh, so that's that we, we know about the 60 million dollars and the questions around that and the auditor general. So that is terrible. And that's being looked into. But earlier this week, uh, Vash Capellos, friend of the show. And of course, we're here because, um, you know, we do the Friday slot for Vashi broke news that the CEO of a company who had been contracted to work on the ArriveCan app was also a national defense employee. So David Yeo is the CEO of Dalian Enterprises. You got to follow me on this. They received $7.9 million to work on the Arrive on ArriveCan. Now, Mr. Yeo has since been suspended. So while he was the CEO of a company that received government contracts for ArriveCan, he was also subsequent, also the same time simultaneously an employee of national defense. Which is a conflict and a very bad thing. Not a good thing. Uh, Further to this, Dalian, which represents itself as Indigenous-owned, and together with a company called Coradix, has received a total of $400 million in government contracts. I'm going to stop there. $400 million. So Dalian has multiple contracts with National Defense. They also have the Canadian Border Services Agency, the RCMP, and other departments. Now, the reason they got some of these contracts is the federal government has uh, has a rule where um, their goal by 2024 is 5% of all government contracts go to Indigenous businesses. That is something I personally support. I think that's a good objective. However, this program, I'm guessing, was clearly being abused by these individuals because they were funneling contracts, white labeling them as Indigenous, and then giving them to another company. 
that's sort of what it looks like, but obviously that program is, of course, under review. Um, Minister Anita Anand, who's now the president of the Treasury Board, but was a former minister of the National Defense and formerly a Treasury Procurement, was asked about this. This was her response. I was definitely not aware. I was very surprised to hear this news. I am heartened to see that he has been suspended from his role as a public service employee and due to this very serious nature of these issues I know that DND is launching an internal investigation into the matter. We are as a government in the process of suspending contracts with Dalian uh, but the answer to the question is no I had no idea. I had no idea. That is not it's not okay. And I'm not, I'm actually not saying, and I do not believe at the currently, and I think many folks, I do not believe this is some grand political conspiracy. I don't. But basically, what appears to be happening in Ottawa is reporters are uncovering various levels of, I don't know, a network, a, a group, like a weird scams that are happening, which are now with $400 million of, so maybe some of them were legitimate, some of them were not, $60 million for uh, Arrive Can work closing in on half a billion bucks here people and the ministers are all just shrugging i had no idea i didn't know no one asked me no one told me about this what is going on in ottawa i i don't understand and maybe um chris you worked in government i worked in government if i was at the helm of of pmo or whatever i would say we referred all these matters to the rcmp we're taking this tremendously seriously but we can't speak more because like of an investigate like that i would just pin it there like no more of this shrugging of the shoulders but chris what do you what do you make of this latest development so this is a story that keeps on as you said giving by the day um i, I mean one of the things that has struck me about this particular angle of this story is that none of this was hidden mr yeo didn't try to hide <laughs> that he was ceo of dalian whilst also being a dnd employee if you look at his linkedin as of you know two days ago it was right there um, so I think this really points to a very, very uh, disturbing, but quite frankly, unacceptable uh, set of lax controls over pandemic spending more generally, which is the bigger problem for the government, by the way, uh, because all of these lax controls were there when they happened to double the national debt to the tune of $500 billion. So, you know, you're spending $500 billion and there are no controls. This is going to happen. Right. The other thing that has not been reported extensively about this particular angle to the story, Mr. Yeo was a People's Party of Canada candidate oh, yeah. in Ottawa West Nepean. So here he is up there with Maxime Bernier railing against pandemic response measures, including, I might point out, the ArriveCan app, mm -hmm. while he's pocketing, and he and his company are pocketing, eight million bucks for it. Like, it's the height of hypocrisy, plus you've got the lax of controls, which is the bigger problem for the government. Allison, I heard you pop in there. What do you make of, uh, I mean, you were a, like a reporter and a producer for, producer, for years yeah. in the, on the Hill and that kind of stuff. What do you make of this uh, this can... onion as it continues to unroll, <laughs> I guess, or unpeel? Well, first of all, it amazes me and it always amazes me when journalists are able to find out more than the government does. And we're supposed to have all these controls in place. Um, to prevent this from happening. And um, and then, you know, you're able to quickly do a Google search and find out all this stuff about an individual. Um, 
yeah, this it just boggles my mind that this individual it was able to get this amount of money. And, uh, you know, I am sure uh, Minister Anand was surprised. You don't know everyone who works within D&D, but someone had to know. Like, I just don't understand, you know, as Chris said, it was posted on his LinkedIn account. How could you not notice that this gentleman, I, I, I actually, I take that back, not a gentleman. He scammed us for a lot, taxpayers <laughs> for a lot of money. Um, and he was able to go about and do this under, uh, you know, the guise of an indigenous company, um, under uh, the pretense of, you know, a candidate for a party that didn't believe in what was being done to protect Canadians at the time of a pandemic that we had, you know, day by day, it was growing of knowledge of what, you know, what this pandemic was going to do to this country. And um, yes, I understand it was a pandemic that we had never been through something like this before, but we have a lot of measures in place in the government to for passports, uh, for registering for your taxes, and that. And then this gentleman, and 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 in full disclosure, Chris understands this as well. When you're bidding on contracts for the government, it's not an easy process. So how can this? this employee of D&D goes through all of this scrutiny to get these contracts without anyone knowing. It just doesn't make sense. And, you know, you, you know how much information you have to give when you're giving your taxes and all that kind of stuff. Why did not someone not pick up on this? This is, it's a huge failure on the government and um, it's, it's, it, it needs to be investigated. I, and this is not going to go away. It, I think the onion is going to go right down to the bulb on this one. And Chris, I have about uh, 30 seconds left here, but like I, this room, it's, it's obviously different, but in the early 2000s, when I first got involved in politics, we had ad scam. It was the biggest scandal in Canadian politics. It started with mm-hmm. the AG releasing a scathing report where she called, you know, the scandalous and appalling. She found a hundred million dollars was paid to a variety of communications agencies um, from public works officials who quote broke just about every rule in the book, like tick, 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 tick. Now the approach has been different, but when does this jump from being bureaucrats and, and ministers shrugging their shoulders to like a political problem for the prime minister? Are we already there? I think we're there, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it only grows. Like more of these stories come out, the more people are going to be looking more deeply into all of those 500 billion with a B dollars that were spent. And who knows what they'll find? Who knows who got rich and who knows uh, who did what for, for perhaps a lot of money. Um, that's i think we're there and it will be very interesting to see where this goes and if we get any misspent money back yeah which is is the big question not to mention the fact this is actually like this was it defrauded indigenous businesses too in fact right like 400 million dollars mm-hmm. funneled through that we're supposed to go to indigenous entrepreneurs who deserve a chance to to, to, to see that so anyway we it will tarnishes, i'm it sure this is that yeah, it really does. And I'm sure we will we will continue to follow this story on the show. After the break, a new PharmaCare framework, well, that's what they're calling it, was rolled out this week. I have some suspicions. I want to see what the panel thinks about this. I'm Amanda Galbraith. That's next on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Free for All Fridays continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
Welcome back to the show. Amanda Galbraith here in the saddle with you this Friday. Uh, joining me on the panel today is Chris Day, president of Winston Wilmot and Allison Fair of Blue Sky Strategy Group. Uh, she's a communications and media consultant. So there was much anticipation earlier this week when the federal government uh, table were to table their new pharmacare legislation. So basically the idea is that you would get free drugs or pills or whatever it is that you need in this country. I'm not really sure that's what they tabled. I'm going to be totally honest <laughs> with you. So I, I feel like I might be the only one. I, I just So they presented this, quote, piece of legislation, unquote. And legislation is usually, like, very thick and substantive. Instead, this is a six-page bill that's not quite a bill that outlines the foundational principles of what a national universal drug coverage plan could be. But it doesn't actually implement one. And it only is going to cover two kinds of drugs right now. What both were the uses? One is for diabetes, and there's 3.7 million diabetics in this country right now. And the other is for uh, for um, what am I looking for now? Uh, someone give me the words. Uh, sorry. Thank you. Can I thank you, Chris? Contraception. <laughs> so contraception, which is needed by many Canadians. So. Fair enough. How much is it going to cost when they're asked? Well, they don't know because it depends on what the provinces say. Like, I just, so anyway, we have a six page document that is dealing with two kinds of classes of drugs, basically, that has no plan to implement it, but we're calling this pharmacare. I mean, okay, sure. Uh, here is, uh, here is uh, the health minister, Mark Holland, speaking about uh, how proud he is of this moment. Today in the House of Commons, I was deeply proud to introduce an act respecting pharmacare that lays out the principles essential for a national universal pharmacare in Canada and sets out our plan to provide universal single-payer coverage for a range of contraception and diabetes medications. There we go. <laughs> so, um, I yeah, I mean, so some people are acting like this is the greatest thing that the NDP and this is like the NDP and the Liberals have ever done. Of course, for political context, as we know, the reason that this was introduced broadly is that it was like sort of a it was a red line for the NDP. That there'd be some kind of pharma care thing at, at the NDP convention. Jugmeet Singh, they voted to say this is something that has to be achieved. Uh, this was in order to keep the confidence supply agreement. So the agreement that allows the liberals and NDP to work together so they don't vote against one another. So we have the liberals in government, which means we're not going to see an election until 2025 at the end of 2025. So that this this. Six-page document secured the future of the Prime Minister's Prime Minister Trudeau for another year and a bit, and Jagmeet Singh still at the head of his job. Uh, Chris, I don't know. Am I? Am I? Maybe I'm. I'm happy to be excited about a pharmacare bill. I'm not really. I, I candidly don't think it's necessarily needed in this country. I think we could spend that money elsewhere. But am I missing something, or, or, or do you, about this thing, or do you think this is the greatest thing that ever happened to Canadian healthcare? Oh, we're missing a lot in this bill, as you pointed. I mean, the preamble is longer than the text of the bill itself, almost. So, I mean, it, 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 there's worthy stuff in here. The contraception, diabetes, you know, the, the single purchaser and the buying power of that. Like, sure, that's great. It's so great, in fact, that the provinces already do both of those things in some cases. So, you know, like this is duplicative at at best and um, politics at its worst, in my view. So. Uh, you know, I get, listen, I get Mr. Holland had a deadline. I didn't, you know, 
I really felt for him going out. Like the story <laughs> on the lab, Sorry. you know, yeah. taking over this big announcement that he had. Like, you know, the lab thing broke the night before. And then he's out to try and sort of say, hey, this is, you know, the second coming of, of Medicare. Um, you know, I really felt for him for that. And they didn't have the answers he needs to give because the first answer is, well, how much is this going to cost? And he's like, well, I can't tell you that. I got a number in my head, but I can't tell you that. You know, I, I, I get you don't go and say, listen, I want to replace my kitchen to a contractor. And and the contractor asks you, well, how much do you want to spend? And you'd be like, oh, I, I want to spend, you know, no more than 50 grand. Your kitchen's going to be 50 grand, right? So he's going to go into these conversations with the provinces and try and negotiate down. Um, but really, like, it was just such a, a, a nothing burger piece of legislation. It really terrible rollout and you know if that's if this is the best week that Jagmeet Singh has of his political career then you know um, so be it but uh, you know I think the devil will be in the details uh, over the coming months it's going to cost us a lot of money and uh, we'll see how many people actually get helped by it Allison I actually candidly don't um, thank you Chris for what well, I agree with you Chris broadly on all of this points, <laughs> <laughs> including our, our thoughts Same. and prayers for the minister who had to go and sell this thing everyone um but you know allison i actually i'm not sure we're gonna see much maybe we will see more of this but i feel like there'll be a consultation it'll take forever yada 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 we'll get into an election and this thing will we'll die a slow death but maybe maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong but what's your what's your take on on this one so full full transparency um my the company i work for blue sky we do work with clients in this space um i, I ha i'm not a lobbyist i don't have an interest in this but i just wanted to make that uh fully known um but you <laughs> i think you uh, nailed it on the head i don't think you know as as chris said it's going to be rolled out with the provinces um they're going to establish some program details uh we actually don't have a start date to pinpoint um, and it's just, there's a lot of questions here and I just, I, I, I don't, I know they were uh, rushing for the deadline. Um, and, but I honestly don't think this is a win either for the NDP or the liberals. Um, just, just too many unknowns, uh, you know, not even knowing which contraception we're going to be covered. And the, yesterday I was watching the announcement and Don Davies from the NDP says, you know, you'll be able to go to to your pharmacy and get your contraception and get your, your diabetes medications. Okay, well, by that quote alone, you're telling people that they could go to their pharmacy right now and and and, and ask for that the, these drugs are going to be covered, which isn't the case. There was a lot of messaging there that it, it should have been changed because it gave people the impression that as of today, you're going to be able to get access to these medications you're not. It's going to be a long time coming. Um, I'm not even sure, you know, we'll see it, you know, in the next, you know, five years. I, I, I want to be hopeful. Um, but um, I think this is just a lot of uh, um, uh, rhetoric by the government um, and the NDP to get something going here. Um, I think it's a, an also an opportunity for the NDP um, yes, you say we're not going to an election till you know later in 2025. Fixed date is in October, um, but uh, I think this allows the NDP to say we've done what we wanted to with the government. Our deal is done, and we're going to now stand back and we're going to try to 
pave our own identity now uh, so that we can go ahead into the elections stronger than we are and then not riding on the coattails of the Liberal government. Who knows? I mean, they... They might try and do that, uh, Allison. But I will say, like, I mean, Jagmeet Singh's been unable to capitalize on anything. I think, honestly, yeah. I think he goes in an election, he loses, and he's out. I think him, I think I we're going to have, I, I don't think I like he's, I think that's part of the I reason agree. they're staying as long as they are. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, the NDP are, are again, as I said, riding the coattails of the Liberal Party right now and uh, hoping these little nuggets will stick with uh, voters. I'm not sure they will. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in 2025 uh, when we do get to that that election date. And to you real quick, Chris, I've got about 30 seconds. There's been some discussion that, I mean, because of the amount of money, time and energy that's been spent on this when we're facing like doctor shortages across the country, that this actually might backfire. Do you think there's a political, think that's an option or an, a possibility? There's absolutely risk involved whenever you whenever you do a program like this. Uh, you know, your you, people are are living hospital room, uh, you know, hospital ERs closing or huge huge delays right now. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of, of need and and you know good things that could be happening in health systems. Um, I think some people will legitimately be asking whether or not this is the priority that needed to be focused on with a, uh, you know, 1.5, 2 billion. We're throwing around billions now. Like it's, uh, yeah, lots of billions. uh, You know, like, uh, is this the priority? Uh, People will judge this, I think. Uh, And I'm not sure it's going to be favorable for either party. All right. Uh, Coming up, we're going to have some fun. We're going to pay our respects to West Virginia Hooters. And as well, we're going to get the tea surrounding Kate Middleton. That's next after the break on iHeartRadio. Back to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. Amanda Galbraith here with you for the last two hours. And of course, this is uh, Free For Friday. We dig into the biggest stories of the week. And we like to have, a, like, I guess, fun, but a little like, less serious <laughs> stuff than, you know, billion, half a billion dollar scams and pharmacare policies and et cetera to debate in this last little section. Uh, the voices you just heard kind of in the background, Chris Day, president of Winston Wilmot and Allison Fair, Blue Sky Strategy Group. She's a communications and media consultant there, have been unpacking some of these big stories this week. And these are two important stories. The the, the I'm going to leave my favorite one for last. Uh, but this <laughs> next one, to me, just talks a little bit about... Um, frankly the internet and how it can push and spark people to do things so there has been wild speculation over the last few days basically the question is where is where is princess kate middleton she announced in january that she was having abdominal surgery hasn't been seen since christmas and then for whatever reason the internet decided that there was all kinds of conspiracy theories and that she hadn't been seen and weird things are happening or she's in a coma yada 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 now, this has actually forced Kensington Palace, and, and it's interesting, the Crown typically doesn't actually make statements about the health of, of the royals. For the, the, they, the Queen's passing was just has been listed, I believe, as a natural cause. There's no detail about that, right? The announcement about um, King Charles's cancer was highly unusual. But because of all the wild speculation, all of the rumors, uh, today they've, the, pal- the palace has actually come out and said, made it clear that 
we have timelines. We are not going to be giving running commentary on the princess, but she continues to recover well following her abdominal surgery, and they expect that she will be out and about after Easter. Uh, you're both, you know, both Chris and Allison, you are communications pros. Mm-hmm. Um, I also dabble in it in my other day job. Uh, <laughs> what do you make of this whole speculation? Basically, like, Twitter kind of went crazy and it forced the royal family to come out and make a statement. What do you make of all this speculation, Allison? I'm going to go to you first. It, it, to be honest, it, it's not surprising that the, the Kensington Palace has had to do this, but they were they were very clear on the outset of when Kate went into the hospital that she would be out of the public eye until Easter. It stated that. I think all of us read it who, you know, read reputable newspapers um, and, 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 and such. So it's not surprising, though, that the conspiracy theories are out there. It's just people have nothing better to do than speculate what is happening to Kate. Poor girl. Like, I mean, um, you're not allowed to go in for surgery and, um, and be off and out of the public eye for a while. Um, give her a break. And uh, I'm glad Kensington Palace, you know, did the right thing and said, look, you know, we're, she's, you know, things are, are as, but as per what we said back uh, when she went into the hospital, she's staying out of the public eye. Um, we don't need to know every little detail about the Royals. Um, yeah. yeah, it makes uh, good, you know, headlines, but I, I think this has gone too far. Yeah, Chris, my, I mean, girl had three kids. Like, we just need to, I mean, yep. I kind of leave her be. She can come back after Easter. She wants to take a couple months off. Uh, Chris, what do you, do you think we should just leave Kate alone? Well, I mean, this is the most photographed family on the planet, right? And as the only person on this panel who's not uh, delivered children, um, <laughs> I will leave it to you about what it, it does to a person to have to go stand in front of the paparazzi as you leave the hospital, you know, 12 hours after having given birth. But, um, you know, I think this really does raise some interesting stuff that we'll have to dig into here. I mean, uh, certainly hope the princess is doing well and certainly hope that this isn't a sign of something more serious. Um, But, you know, you compare and contrast her situation with how the king handled his uh, prostate cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And he used it as an opportunity for awareness and the importance of testing. So we'll see, I suppose, depending on on what the issue was, because all we know is that it was, quote, undisclosed but non-cancerous. You know what what the issue was and if it if she could turn it into an opportunity for people to you know maybe go get tested or uh you you know take good care of themselves uh i could see this turning around but i mean the internet's a beast and and x is awful and uh yeah this is you know example number you know 50 million so there you go i mean i kind of hope for kate that she got a mommy makeover but that's just me just i mean not that she needs it but i just think any woman that's given birth to three kids just deserves it alone and and Um, quickly just i want to say that you know as and thank you chris for addressing that we have you know we've given birth but um women um we have a lot of our our bodies are complex and it may not just be giving birth it you know because she had children she may have uh, you know uh, reproductive you know causes from childbirth or you know um a lot of things that we we don't understand it, it, the female body is complex and i just hope she's resting and recuperating and enjoying lovely shows on netflix with her children around her here 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 here, here. here, here. All right. I want, I really want to get to this one. Uh, so 
this came across earlier this week for me. Hundreds of devoted friends and neighbors gathered to honor the closure of their beloved restaurant that was going to be demolished on Monday. So the Kanawha City Eatery was West Virginia's last remaining Hooters. Here is audio from the candlelight vigil that they held to honor it. For all the uh, naysayers, the doubters, the down talkers and whatnot, this building right here was a legitimate, iconic figure to the Canola Valley. I mean, I just, I love it so much. I just can't. So they gathered former employees, community members, gathered the lands outside of the Sheets gas station next to the Hooters uh, to talk about what the chain's closure meant to them. They dressed up. Um, they shouted, long live Hooters. It was an emotional time. <laughs> the reason the reason I said is actually because fun fact, we used to travel with another family when I was a kid and we would uh, we would do road trips throughout the States. I'm going to mess the story up. My parents are going to give me crap for it on the weekend. We used to go to Hooters to eat all the time. I went to the original Hooters and uh, I think, yeah, no, we used to go all the time. I went to all over them all over the U.S. and we had fun family meals with lots of chicken wings. But anyway, so I have some emotional wow. attachment. Hooters. We have about a minute and a half left. I would know that if I go to a, a, vi- a vigil, but um, Chris, uh, do you have a fondness for this restaurant or do you have one you would go to a candlelight vigil for? Should it be <laughs> bulldozed over? So I love a good chicken wing, right? Absolutely. Um, I I have never found a good chicken wing at Hooters. Um, I, I I've been to um, Hooters once in my life, and thank you for mentioning what I think is the most ironic part of the story. Because what's going to replace this Hooters is a gas station called Sheets, and when I went to Hooters, I left with that. So. Um, <laughs> I wish these folks all the best in their post-Hooter life. All right, Allison, I got like 20 seconds for you. Words, your, uh, anyway, over to you. I'm not even going to preempt it. Uh, I just, you know, I there are no words for this. I just, you know, I hope the women that work there are able to keep, you know, their, their tops uh, and be proud of the place they worked. And I'm sure the neighborhood has lost a wonderful place to gather. Um, never been to one. And you know what? I'm not missing out, I think. That was more you know, dramatic than me, I have to say. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta say, I had like lovely meals as, as a kid at Hooters, but anyway, like just maybe I grew up a little different than the rest of y'all, I think, which is I totally think I, fine. There's money that I could spend at better places, that's all. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. All right, those voices are, of course, Chris Day, president of Winston Wilmot, and Allison Fair of Blue Sky Strategy Group joining us on the panel today. I am Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday. I want to thank Mark Tang behind the board and Noah, of course, for keeping me on up and up with stories, except for this one, which was my idea, not his. <laughs> um, I will be back next Friday. Have a wonderful weekend.